Welcome to Shoot Wisely, the content creator's podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi. With over 25 years of production experience, as a documentarian, my cameras have taken me across this country and around this amazing world, capturing and telling stories. The Shoot Wisely podcast is a conversation with fellow storytellers with the goal to inspire. Welcome to episode 11 of the Shoot Wisely podcast. I am your host and guest today, Amir Brahimi. Full disclaimer, this podcast is a lot more work than I actually thought it was going to be. Now, a lot of people are probably laughing or rolling their eyes, but honestly, when I started this podcast, I just wanted to have conversations with creatives. And once I figured out the logistics and the program that I wanted to use and the microphone and all those things, I figured it was just as easy as connecting with people, setting up a time, recording the conversation, adding a, a intro and an outro and, and putting it out to the world. But like most things that I start, you know, it starts with, with an idea, but then you do it and you're like, well, I can make this a lot better and I can cut social videos for it. And, you know, I can put the whole thing up on YouTube, but if I'm going to put the thing on YouTube, then I need to cut images to it. Then now you're talking about post-production and producing videos, which is what I do, but it also takes a lot of time. And I took a lot of care in those first nine, 10 episodes in promoting them and creating social videos for them. And this week I just didn't have the time. Um, I, I have a, I have my production company that I run. I have DTLA culture, which is a project that I run as well. I have this podcast and oh, by the way, I have a 10 month old daughter. So life happens pretty quickly and I wanted to stay true to my commitment to myself and to my guests that I was going to release an episode every week. So I decided to just talk into the microphone, which I realized I'm going to have to do every once in a while where I'm going to take uh, certain topics and just kind of talk about them a little bit. But I do have the ability to rant. So I am going to keep this very structured so that this podcast actually makes sense. It has a beginning, middle and end. So I'm going to talk to you about how I came up with the idea, where the name came from. And I'm going to briefly run down my resume, if you call it that, to just let you know my background and who who's actually talking behind this microphone. You know, a little bit of my story naturally comes out with each guest, but I think there's some things that I can kind of um, talk about this podcast, which would help you understand who your host is. And, you know, the podcast is definitely not about me. It's about my guests and our conversation and the process that people go through and their history with their work. And, and my main goal is to inspire. I inspire myself by these conversations and by talking to these creatives that I've met over the years. Um, and some people that I've just met on social media for the sole purpose of having them on my podcast. For instance, Jake Ricker, who has been documenting the Golden Gate Bridge for the last um, three years. And um, he was episode six. Uh, I'd never met him before. I just reached out to him because I loved his work. Another one is uh, Suitcase Joe. I'd never met him. I still don't know his name because he remains anonymous. Never met him before, but I reached out to him because I love the work that he's doing. Um, Kyrie Mason, the uh, ex-detective, ex-homicide detective, 
who I met through Jamel Shabazz. I also didn't know him as well, but I was recommended to him. So there are people that I, I haven't met before and, you know, I get to talk to them, but all that to say, you know, maybe it's a little important for you to understand who I am and where I'm coming from. So first, first of all, like I said, Shoot Wisely podcast, to understand a Shoot Wisely podcast, to understand me, you have to know that I had a brother who passed away in 2009, which is 11 years now, just past the anniversary, if you want to call it that, March 2nd of... 2009 my brother passed away unfortunately um, my brother was an amazing photographer and he is the main and sole purpose of why I am a creative he was seven years older than me so when he was going to film school at 21 I was 14 years old and he was coming home with movies like you know Dr. Strangelove and Last Tango in Paris and certain films and, and genres and, and um, Godard and all of these films that were definitely over my head, but my eyes and my brain and my palate was soaking in all of this visual information, even if I didn't know what to do with it at the time. So I thank him for that. And I also thank him for how critical he was of my photography and how he always challenged me to go further and to, um, I mean, one story is, you know, when MySpace first came out was the first time that I was able to just put my work out there. And when I did, I got a lot of positive responses and a lot of people that were really into my work. And my brother was always there to bring me back down to reality and remind me that these people had no idea what they were talking about. So not to take what these people say and and let it get to my head but you know that little bit of confidence that I got back then was 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 huge for me because you have to understand it's different back back then you know before Instagram before you know I mean there was websites but y you had to have a lot of money in order to have a website not everybody could build a website there was no Squarespace there was no Wix you know everything had to be uh, coded and it wasn't that easy. So all that to say, it wasn't easy to get your work in front of people. You actually had to print out a portfolio and set up an appointment and sit down with somebody. And you know, each one of those prints was at least $10, $15. And if you're, you know, you have a, a, a book of, I don't know, 80, 90 images you want to show somebody, you know, that adds up. And, and not to mention all the the prints that you printed that didn't come out right or too dark or too light or whatever the case may be. So, um, my brother was always there to, to, to bring me down to earth. And, uh, he was actually maybe a little too, too tough on me, but, um, the, the idea of this podcast, the name of this podcast shoot wisely is from a note that my brother left me on a Industria notepad, which for those that don't know, Industria was and is a, I think it still is, a, a huge studio in New York. When I was in New York, it was Industria, Milk, and what was the other one? Um, Fast Eddie's or something like that in Williamsburg. I forget what it was. But he wrote me a simple note that just said, shoot wisely, love, neither. And he left it for me. And you know, I found that note after he passed away and I framed it and it's been in this frame 
ever since. And it's just reminds me to shoot wisely. You know, the thing with my brother is, you know, he was hyper, hyper critical of me, but it made me really think about my work and really think about what I was shooting and why I was shooting. You know, even though I just wanted to have fun with it, the, the time that I became a photographer is even though I was shooting since I was 14 years old, I think it was the first time my dad gave me a camera. And it wasn't until I was 26 that my dad was talking about selling his Hasselblad, which, you know, my dad was a novice photographer. He always took pictures of us, but he did have this amazing, clean Hasselblad, which at the time, the Hasselblad was extremely intimidating to me, just it, just the way it looked and the way it worked and the, the medium format. And, you know, I remember him talking about wanting to sell it on eBay and my brother saying, you know, cause at the time I was looking for a camera and my brother telling me, if, if you want to be serious, you should buy that camera off, off pops. And at the time, you know, my brother was visiting from Cambodia because he was working at an NGO I'm laughing because there's just too many stories to tell. So I'm going to kind of have to briefly go, like glaze over it. My brother was working at an NGO in Cambodia while I was living in New York. And the first time that I went to go visit him, I decided to bring the Hasselblad. And I told my dad, I said, hey, let me take this camera to Cambodia. Let me take a bunch of pictures. Let me come back and, and see what those pictures look like. And if I feel like I deserve this camera, I'll buy it off you. And I went to Cambodia and at the time, my brother was working at a NGO, the only NGO. In, oh, actually, no, it wasn't an NGO. It was the opposite of an NGO. It was a government-funded orphanage in Cambodia, the only government-funded orphanage in Cambodia. And it ended up being really corrupt. And my brother worked there and ended up, um, another long story, ended up opening up his own home for Cambodian kids. I call it a home for Cambodian kids because it wasn't an orphanage. It was a place where kids that could go and get schooling, get um, just uh, basic medical attention because a lot of these kids, they actually do have family or at least a mother or a father, but they just don't have the means to give them the basic uh, necessities that we generally take for granted in this country and in and, and, and most countries. So I went to Cambodia. It was, it was a trip. I went by myself to go visit my brother I went to Cambodia and uh, both of us went to Vietnam and Thailand together. And then I took a trip by myself to Angkor Wat for about four days. So I think I was there in East Asia for a total of a month. And all I had was my Hasselblad. And, you know, when I came back, because I didn't know I was taking pictures out there and I didn't know how they were coming out. You know, you take a roll of film and you just keep shooting. And when I came back, you know, I, I, again, the other thing I should say is at the time I was living in New York and when I first moved to New York, my brother lived there as well. And because he was seven years older than me, I met a lot of people in that age group and it was intimidating because here I am a 21 year old moving to New York, trying to figure it out. I'm a DJ. I'm, you know, I want to get in the film. Um, and you know, I'm dealing with these people that are professionals, you know, they're, they were professionals and they, you know, had businesses and, and, um, you know, they were shooting for, you know, major companies. And every time we went out to dinner, everybody was talking about what amazing project they were working on. And, 
and you know, here I am going to school and instead of embracing the fact that I was just this, this puppy. Yeah. I felt like I had to approve myself every time we went out. I felt like I had to talk about something big, something I was working on. And, you know, I'm sure I came out, came across as an asshole a lot, but all that to say, when I came back from Cambodia and I printed all these pictures and I had my super critical artist friends, you know, come over casually. I never, I never presented them, presented it to them in any, you know, fashion that was, uh, that made it seem like, um, structured. It was more like, oh, we were smoking or drinking at my crib. And, you know, one night I kind of like pulled them out and just kind of showed them to people. And I remember, cause I felt really proud about them. And I remember people looking at them and, and looking at me and saying like, oh, so you're a photographer. And me saying, yes, I am a photographer. And the one thing I should say is, you know, at the time I was a set designer. So here's, let's, let's run down my resume. When I first moved to New York, I was a DJ and I didn't move to New York to become a DJ, but I was DJing and I was making money on the side while I was going to Brooklyn college and studying film. Now in the three years that I went to Brooklyn college, all of a sudden I went from, you know, trying to DJ here and there at a, at a bar, you know, maybe once or twice a week, it, I got sponsored. Um, I remember I did a big party for Nike where, where Alicia Keys was introduced and I got sponsored by triple five soul, which was a dope urban company at the time. And, you know, I was in source magazine. Um, you know, it kind of just took off, you know, and, and, uh, I was spending five, six nights a week. Uh, I was living the life of a complete vampire zombie because I wasn't waking up before one or two o'clock in the afternoon DJing until, you know, this is New York. So, you know, spots didn't close until four. Even if you finished spinning at like two o'clock, there was somebody else that you knew down the street. I spun a lot on Rivington. So there was like a bunch of bars and, and small little clubs on that street. So, you know, sometimes in between sets, I'd go see somebody else at another set and, you know, or I'd go get some food or after a set, you know, we'd all go get food. And it was a lot of late nights, a lot, a lot of late nights. And, you know, I never moved to New York to be a DJ, but I was just being a DJ. And, you know, at the time, 21, 22, 23, I wasn't making a lot of money, but I was making enough money DJing to get by, you know, I mean, it, it, drinks were always free. I, I spun at a couple cool restaurants. So, you know, I'd get free meals. And then if I went there on my off day, they'd always give me a free meal or, you know, you didn't have to pay for much back then. Once you were a DJ and you were known, you didn't really have to pay for much. If you went to a bar, if you went somewhere, you went to places that people knew you. So you barely had to pay for drinks. I, I was happy. You know, I was happy. I had money in my pocket. People knew my name and, you know, I, I loved going to beat street and, you know, getting the bootleg albums and before they came out and it was, it was a lot of fun. But then September 11th hit and when September 11th hit in New York city, all the partying stopped. If anything, people were going to bars and just smoking and drinking and, and wondering what was going on, but people weren't dancing. People weren't in a, in a, in a, in a jubilant mood. So at that time, everything just stopped for me. You know, I was making straight cash. So all of a sudden everything just stopped and, and I ran out of money. And at the time, my really good friend who I'm still friends with to this day, Albert Lopez, Whenever he'd come to my parties, he'd always say like, Hey man, if you ever want to, you know, PA or something on set, let me know. And at the time 
when I moved to New York, I did a couple PA jobs for some big production shoots and I hated it. I mean, I hated it. I never got anywhere near set. I was throwing away garbage. You know, I was getting treated like shit. And I know that's like a process that you're supposed to go through, but I just wasn't into it. You know, I just wasn't into it. I was getting treated like shit. And then I'd go out and everybody was treating me like this big DJ that was, you know, in magazines and stuff. So I was like, eh, can't do it. So when September 11th hit, I hit up my boy Albert and I was like, yo, Alo, um, what's up with that PA gig? So, you know, at the time he was explaining it to me, but I didn't get it until I actually was on set. He was a production manager. No, what is it called? A uh, production, it is called a uh, production coordinator. He was a production coordinator specifically for the art department. And he worked on a lot of non-union jobs. So my first job with him was, what was the name of the video? It was called, uh, oh God, it was Common and Mary J. Blige. And I think it's called Come Close. And um, it's Common and he's got like these cue cards. And he's, uh, I guess he's singing to a deaf girl, but he's got the cue cards because she can't hear. So he's like, it's kind of like the... Um, the uh, Bob Dylan thing, right? So my job on set was to make sure that all the cue cards were in order. And, you know, it's a pretty easy job. They gave it to the new guy. But it also meant that I had to stand next to Common every time they took a take. And I had to make sure they were, you know, in line. And I got to know Common. And, you know, long story short, I ended up DJing a party for him. But wh whatever. So that kind of started my my art department career because then all of a sudden, you know, I started meeting the other PAs and, and when you're in the art department, especially for non-union gigs, it's a lot different. You're, you're not just a PA, you're a set dresser. Sometimes you're a shopper. Uh, sometimes you're building, you know, it was pretty cool. And, and everybody I worked with was super duper cool. And people loved working with me because I was always like, listen, I ain't fucking, I'm not going to be here very long. So just tell me where you want this box. Just tell me where you want this prop and I'm good. You know, while everybody else was kind of jockeying for position or trying to impress this uh, art director and that art director or trying to like, you know, squeeze their way on set. I was always just like, bro, <laughs> I'm just trying to get through the day. So because of that attitude, I guess a lot of people kept hiring me, you know, because at the time I was getting hired by other PAs like, hey, man, you want to sit in the truck with me or whatever. Da, da, da. So it was 250 here, 200 there. Sometimes you got 350. So I was doing that for quite a while. And. I started meeting some people that actually built sets as well. So then, you know, people were like, hey, I, I, somebody saw me on set building and they were like, hey, you're pretty good with a hammer and nail. Like, do you want to, if you ever want some extra work, you know, you can come work at, um, it was, was it Ready Set at the time? Yeah, Ready Set, because I used to do it for Conduit as well. But at Ready Set, they were like, hey, you know, if you want to come and, and help build some flats, you know, for 150 bucks a day, then it's great, you know. It was a lot of work and it was 10 hour days, but they paid you 150 bucks at the end of the day, straight cash. So it was like, it was, you know, back then it was cool. Well, one day um, I'm hammering away and, you know, I think I was a little elevated at the time, but I was hammering away and I was just in one of those moods, you know, I was like, what am I doing in New York City with this hammer in my hand? Instead of just being happy that I was working, you know, it goes back to me being 20 nothing and thinking I deserved, you know, something more than what I had when I should have just been happy that I was making money and I was, you know, in the process, but you never, you never appreciate it while you're in it. So I slammed the hell out of my thumb with the hammer, you know, cause I'm not paying attention and, and, um, 
thinking about other things other than hammering a nail. And I went outside and, you know, this tells you where I was at the time because I was smoking cigarettes at the time, which I can't stand now. But I was outside smoking a cigarette and this Englishman comes up to me and uh, he asked me for a smoke. So I give him a smoke. And, you know, he starts talking to me and, and um, asking me what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm sitting there bitching to him, you know. I'm like, ah, what the fuck? I'm in New York. I don't know what I'm doing here. And I hit my thumb. I'm smoking a cigarette. I don't even know why I'm smoking. Da, da, da. And he's laughing, you know. And I'm about a minute away from being like, listen, bro, I, I, I don't need you laughing at me. Like, I'm serious here. Like, you just asked how my day is going. And I'm trying to tell you. All of a sudden, he gets a phone call. And he's like, oh, excuse me, mate. Gets on the phone. And I guess somebody cancels on him. And he's like, oh, fuck. He's like, hey, man what are you doing tomorrow? Can, can you work for me? And all of a sudden my attitude changed. I was like, Oh sure. What, what do you need me to do? He's like, well, I just, I just need you to be on set. I've got a shoot going on and this guy just canceled on me and I just need you to be on set just to help me out, you know, moving props around what, whatnot. And, and I, I, I'm sorry, but I can only pay you three fifty. <laughs> I'm slaving away for 150 bucks here. And this dude wants me to be on set for three I'm like, I got you, man. And, um, so that guy was Gideon Ponte who, at the time was one of the biggest art directors, production designers in the fashion world. Um, at the time he had done Puff Buffalo 66. Um, what's another, another movie he did? He did um, something, uh, Betty Page and um, another movie he had done, but I didn't know at the time. And he had stepped away from movies and he was working on major fashion campaigns. So the very next day I'm on set with Mario Testino for a D&G ad, and the model is Naomi Campbell. Now, I'm not that old. Naomi Campbell at the time was already like a um, a legend. You know, it wasn't like the young Naomi Campbell. Um, I mean, to this day, Naomi Campbell is smoking hot, so I'm not trying to say she's old at all, but what I'm trying to, I'm just trying to, this was 2005 maybe, around 2005. So there I am, all of a sudden I'm on set, and... I, at the time, I really thought that fashion photography was bullshit. I just thought it was, you know, a bunch of people on set, beautiful models, great lighting, and, um, you know, amazing clothes, and, you know, a million people working to get this shot. And I was pretty much right, except for the million people trying to get this shot. At least the shoots that I were on, which were major shoots, I'm talking about D&G, Dolce Gabbana, Calvin Klein, Mew Mew, Italian Vogue, like these were major, major campaigns and with major photographers like Mario Testino, um, Mario Sorrenti, Stephen Meisel, uh, Stephen Klein, I mean, um, Greg McDean, like I was on set with these guys like every other day and I just couldn't believe the genius of these, of these photographers and the small crew that they had. Most of them had two assistants, some of them had two, three, some of them had four assistants, but they were only talking to one and the other one was relaying to the other guys. And, you know, I was watching what they were doing and, and, you know, man, they, I mean, they weren't using much, you know, I mean, it wasn't like this huge production and, and I just kind of fell in love with the idea of a small crew. And I just fell in love with the idea of just kind of creating with, with a, a minimal amount of people. And, you know, that was, uh, I did that for about three to four years. And it was funny because I, that attitude that I had when I was a, uh, uh, art department PA where I was just like, look, I'm not going to be here very long. So just tell me what you want to do. I continued that attitude with Gideon. And, you know, while other people on set were always just like posturing and always trying to like impress 
the photographer or the art director or the whoever you were, if you were like the stylist assistant, you were like trying to get with the stylist. And you know, where me, I was like, I don't give a fuck. I'm just here to make the money. And I, I like to watch. I was just watching, you know, and I was always getting cool with the, um, with the uh, photo assistants, you know? I didn't wanna talk to the photographer. I didn't care who the art director was. I didn't care who some, you know, big designer was. And, and I normally could care less about who the big model was, you know? So it, it helped me out a lot, you know, because people, people enjoyed working with me because I just wasn't intimidating. I, I didn't want anybody's job. Even Gideon, like, I didn't wanna be an art director. And it was funny because all of my friends at the time who were really my brother's friends, I mean, they were my friends too, but I say they were my brother's friends because they were older. And a lot of those people didn't take me seriously, which I understand at the time. I mean, at the, at the time I probably took it personal and I was, I was uh, overcompensating, but now I get it. Now I get why they didn't take me personal. They didn't take me serious. But when I started, you know, when we were going out at night and I was like, ah, I gotta go, I gotta shoot tomorrow. And they're like, oh, you're shooting? I'm like, nah, I'm, you know, I'm just, you know, whatever. I'm kind of like, to set set to, you know moving some pieces around oh for what i don't I mean at the time i was like i did steven mizell i think i was called a mizell or something like that and i remember my friend richard uh, mainland was like steven mizell i was like yeah do you know him he's like yeah he's like one of the biggest fashion photographers in the world and i remember specifically saying like oh oh, oh then it's not him <laughs> you know and then i remember the next day on set being like wait a minute who is this guy, Steve Mizell? And I started looking into it and I was like, oh my God, this is like one of the biggest fashion photographers at the time. So my photographer friends were way more impressed with the people that I was working with. I, I started to like get up to speed, but at the time I didn't know anything about fashion photography. You know, I was all about street and documentary photography. And, and even then I, I wasn't really like a person to go down the rabbit hole of, of finding out this photographer's name and that photographer's name. I would just look at uh, books and be like, oh, this is a cool image. Oh, that's dope. Oh, this is cool. And that's, that's as far as it went, you know? So my photographer friends all of a sudden started asking me to, to set design for them, you know? And I remember uh, Jerome Albertini was doing a shoot for Vaunt magazine. And he, actually, no, let me give credit to Jamil GS. Jamil was doing a shoot for some shoe company. And he was the first one to be like, hey man, I need you to set design the shoot for me because I don't have much money and I need you to like help me out. And I remember telling him, I was like, I don't know what the fucking how to set this. And he's like, bro, you're on set with these major dogs every other day. He's like, you must have learned something. He's like, look, this is the shoot. This is what we got to do. This is the budget. Make it work. And I did. I made it work. And then all of a sudden, uh, then that's when Jerome Albertini was like, hey, um, I need you to set design this, this gig, but I have no money. And at this time, at this point, I was like, well, let me see what I can do. And they had, I mean, minimal, minimal, minimal budget, you know, and I did it and it, and it was like a five, six page spread in Vaunt magazine and Gideon's agent saw it. And I remember she called me and I remember she was asking me about it. She wanted to talk about it. And I thought she was upset because I thought she was like, Hey, you can't do this other stuff while you're working for our, our, our major, um, was he a client of hers? Uh, she represented him. So, you know, one of our, how do you word it? One of our major, somebody on our roster. I don't know how, how you would say it, but basically I thought she was going to be upset. 
she calls me in and she's like, Hey, this is brilliant. Is this what you want to do? You always have this attitude. Like you don't really care much about this work and you're just doing the job. I was like, yeah, it's kind of true, but you know, I just kind of did it. And you know, I, I was just kind of helping a friend out and she was like, no, this is really good. She's like, I can represent you. She's like, forget assisting Gideon. Like, let's make some money, you know? So I was like, okay, great. Let's do it. So for two years I was a, I was a set designer and I hated it. I absolutely hated it because I had to work directly with other photographers and these were up and coming photographers and I had to be on set with other photographers and I just, it drove me crazy. You know, it drove me crazy. And then I had to, to put a book together, a portfolio together. And that, I can't tell you, I never felt more pain in my creative life than, than putting together a book of other people's photography and showing it to people and be like, yeah, I picked that chair. Yeah. I designed that wall. Yeah. I, those flowers, I picked them out. Like it, it drove me crazy, you know? And, uh, but I was making good money and I remember I, I worked with Gideon one more time on the movie Nacho Libre. And if I wanted to be a set designer, this, I mean, my career was taking off, you know, I mean, I was in a great position and then I was on set in Oaxaca, Mexico for two months working on this film. And that's when I decided I don't want to do this shit anymore. Like this ain't me, you know, this just isn't me. So I remember when I got back to New York, I told my agent, I was like, Hey, I want to shoot. She's like, do you want to do more jobs? We're not, you know, you don't have to do any more movies. I was like, no, like I actually want to shoot. And she was like, shoot what? And I was like, I want to be a photographer. And she's like, okay, so be a photographer. I was like, oh, great. Cause I knew she had a lot of connections. And I remember thinking like, oh, she's going to help me out. You know, da, da, da. And I was like, wow, this is really easy. She's like, sure. She'd be a photographer then. And I was like, okay, great. And she's like, okay, I got to go. We'll talk soon. She always kind of got off the phone like that. So I didn't think much of it. So get off the phone. Huge weight is lifted off my shoulders. And I'm like, oh, this is great. You know, blah, 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 all this stuff. So then all of a sudden, uh, the, her assistant calls, who I dealt with mainly. And she starts talking about like uh, my final payment or something. I forgot how she worded it, but it was something like final. And I was like, what do you mean final? She's like, oh, like you haven't been on the website? Lately, like you're, you're dropped. And she, she says the lady's name. I don't, don't want to mention it. She's like, oh, she dropped you. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, yeah, she said you wanted to be a photographer. So she said, go be a photographer. That moment, at that moment, I was done. Uh, again, all my work was done. I had no money coming in. They gave me my final check. And she was just like, go be a fucking photographer, you know? And uh, that was it. You know, and, you know, I think about that a lot because I could have easily just continued art directing. I mean, it was a great gig. It was a great gig. The money was good. It wasn't very hard. Not that I don't like working hard. That's not it. I just mean it wasn't very stressful, you know. And, you know, I mean, it was like there was a lot of perks, man. You got to travel. You're around beautiful people all the time. You're around creatives. Um, there was always like great food, um, you know, shopping for de like designers and, and going to and creating relationships with, with store owners that would, you know, uh, rent out their high end furniture or high end art or whatever the case may be. It was just a great resource to have. And I could have easily have done that and just kind of cultivated my photography along the way, but nope, I had to be righteous and I had to open up my big mouth and, and she dropped me. And I remember shortly after is when the Hasselblad story came up and 
you know, my brother was like, well, you got some time now. Why don't you come visit me in, in Cambodia? So I went to go visit him in Cambodia. I took my Hasselblad and I came back with what I still think to this day, my best body of work. And I surprisingly enough bought the camera off my dad. I thought he was going to give it to me, especially after he saw the images. I mean, he gave me a discount. He's like, yeah, I was going to sell it for 2,200. I'll sell it to you for 1200 thinking like I was going to be like, Oh wow. Great dad. I was like, Oh, okay. Um, so I give you 600 now and 600 later. And he's like, yeah, sure. And I remember like two months later, my dad was like, so where's that 600 bucks? <laughs> Rest in peace, dad. So then from that, I had my first show and I called it Campbell on my mind and all the proceeds went to my brother's uh, home for Cambodian kids. And you know, I made almost no money the next couple of years, but something changed. People referred to me as a photographer. People were talking about my work. People recognized me for my work, for my body of work. And I was carrying around a portfolio of photographs that I took, that I created, that, that represented who I was and who I am. And that was huge to me. That was, that was everything. And I think it's very important for people to have a very strong identity of who they are and what they do in life needs to represent who they are as a person in everything you do, in the way that you treat people, in the way you exercise, in the way you treat yourself, in the work that you do, in the way that you present yourself. All of that has to be in line with who you are as a person. And if any one of those things is out of line, it throws everything out of line. And, you know, I would never tell any young creative to take the path that I took because I should be much further along in my career. I should have a lot more money in the bank if I would have stuck to just documentary photography, just documentary films, just shooting models, just uh, shooting street, just shooting sports. Like if I just would have picked one of those things and did it as absolutely the best possible representation that I could make it, I would be that person, but it's confusing and I get it. You know, I edit, I shoot, I, I direct, you know, it's, and, and within the shooting I shoot, you know, if you go to my website, you're going to shoot, you're going to see, um, NBA portraits. You're going to see on court portraits. You're going to see documentary work from all over the world. You're going to see portraits. You're going to be see lifestyle. You're going to see shots of models. And for me, I'm obsessed with people. And if you give me a person, whether it's a newborn, a child, uh, a teenager, um, a model, an athlete, an elderly woman or man, and you give me a little time with them, I'm going to take a pretty good picture of them. And I would never, I would not call myself a master of anything, but I'm pretty damn good at taking pictures of people. And I'm pretty damn good at stepping into any world and coming out with a pretty good documentation of what that world is. And a lot of that is because I was a DJ, I was a set designer. I worked at restaurants. I love to cook. I love to travel. I love to play sports. 
I love to learn. Um, I love to talk to older people. I love to talk to young people. I love to talk to babies. I love to, like, there's so many things that interest me. And I've been able to dip my foot into every single one of those interests to the point where it's just information that I always use and pull from no matter what I'm doing. I always have, I always embrace a situation and an event for what it is, but there's always a familiarity that comes with it that I can say, oh, well, this reminds me of that time that I was in Cambodia by myself, or, oh, this reminds me of when I was walking down that street in Brooklyn, or, oh, this reminds me of, of that really high-end dinner I went to, or there's just certain situations that I can pull from that make me comfortable in uncomfortable situations. And I think that's very important. And I think that's very important. So um, just briefly to, to continue, I, after, you know, I, I was shooting, um, shortly after that is when DSLRs became available. And I had my 5D. I don't know if I had a 5D first or a 7D first. I think I had a 5D first. And, you know, I, I made that little switch to video. And the fact that I, you could change lenses now, um, it was everything. And I just started shooting videos. You know, I started shooting music videos. I shoot, started shooting little vignettes. Um, you know, I started experimenting a lot and that's when a company called Bleacher Report moved to New York to start their video department and a young creative by the name of, uh, Weston Green found my work online and he emailed me. I will never forget. He got an email from somebody saying, Hey dude, no dude, love your work. One question. Do you know anything about sports? Like that was the email. I was like, this is a fucking joke. And I remember uh, I called him and they asked me in and, and uh, they were just starting their video department in, in New York. Uh, there was only like three other people there. Lance Fresh was one of them. Shout out to my boy, Lance Fresh. And I signed a three month contract. I didn't tell anybody that I shot. I, I wanted to be a producer director because I didn't have any directing credits and I wanted to get into documentaries and, and direct a little bit. So I didn't, I showed them all my work, but I didn't tell them I shot any of it. I told them I directed and produced it. So I got the job. I had a three month contract that turned into a seven year, I'll call it career at Bleacher Report. And I wouldn't trade those years for anything, you know, as difficult as it was sometimes in the beginning, because they were, they just didn't know what they were doing. And a lot of people that were in charge didn't know what they were doing. And, uh, they were very childish. And there was a lot of office politics that I had no clue about since I never worked for anybody. Basically, I didn't have a job up until that point, a real job. And, you know, I, I just, the office politics was something that I just, it just blew my mind. You know, it just was like, it just, it just was crazy. But anyways, what happened was that I started traveling all around the country up until that point, I had traveled more outside of the U S than I did within the U S and in those seven years, I think there's four States that I did not go to. I haven't been to North or South Dakota. I haven't been to Alaska and what's the other one. There's someone. Oh, Oregon. I've never been to Oregon, which is literally right there. But, um, you know, I sat across the table from a lot of people. And it taught me a lot because especially in the beginning, we worked a lot with high school kids. And when you're working with high school kids, that means you're really working with their parents. So, you know, I would go to these towns, you know, sometimes in the middle of nowhere and you would spend two, three days with, with, 
you know, the kid and, and their family. And, you know, you make a connection with the kid, but you really make a connection with the parents. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it gets to a point where, you know, they have you over for dinner, they have you for breakfast. And you, you, the one thing that I love about my job is it accelerates this relationship with, with complete strangers that you do a little research on. But if they agree to do the job with you, you come spend, you know, whether it's a day or, or a month with them, you know, you're gonna, you have like this free pass to ask them any question you want, respectively. And that really accelerates a relationship. And all that to say, you know, I sat across the dinner table with a lot of people that probably had different political and religious views than I do. And, you know, I never, I never entertained any of those conversations. And even if people didn't really talk about it, you could, you could, you could, kind of get where they were leaning, whether it was religiously or politically, by just the way they talked or by certain, you know, things that they would say, which I would never, ever engage with because it's just, it's just not worth it. But the thing that I learned was no matter what your political or your religious view is, most people have a lot in common, you know, and that's, that's, they want the best for them, their families. They want to make an honest living. They don't want to be cheated. And they're willing to pay taxes if they feel like those taxes are being used responsibly, you know, and, you know, everything else outside of that is kind of, it's kind of, you know, secondary, right? So if, if all of those things, we can agree on all those things, then, you know, we're a lot more alike than we think. And it kind of goes back to what Charles Barkley is saying, where it's like, you know, people want to keep us separated, but, you know, the, the big secret is, is, we're a lot more alike than people want us to think. So anyways, I'm going off in another direction, but I think I'm going to wrap it up there. I think, um, you know, that was just a little, uh, dip into who I am and what my career was. Um, you know, to, to wrap it up, uh, I left Bleacher Report in 2017 to start Metric 9 Productions. Um, I was doing Metric 9 Productions for about a year and then helped start, uh, Close Up 360 and left close up 360 uh january 1st 2020 to focus more on metric nine and to start dtla culture and to do my own thing and here we are now in 2021 and uh, i think the biggest project that i have coming up right now is i am working on my first book which is going to be called dtla 2020 or dtla culture 2020 and it's basically just going to be all my documentation of everything that I saw firsthand in 2020 in downtown LA. And I'm, I'm kind of flirting with whether or not it should be a documentary or it should be a video series that I can pitch to Netflix. Um, I have somebody that I need to talk to, a producer I need to talk to, pitch the idea to them. And um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm working on. And like I said, I'm, I'm definitely committed to Shoot Wisely podcast and producing and releasing a episode every week. And I'm not worried about the numbers, you know, I'm, I'm, I really want to just put my head down for a year and promote it, you know, as best I can, but really just kind of hone my skill, focus on guests and focus on who my audience is and cater to them. I always want to stay true, true to myself, but you know, I think after a couple months I can kind of start figuring out who my target audience is and start catering the, the content to them. And I think the one thing I want to end with is my struggle of whether or not I just talk to photographers and DPs. If I do that, it makes the, the podcast way more specific, 
which is good because then if you're a photographer, a DP, or if you're interested in one of those things, then this podcast is definitely for you. But I called it the content creators podcast because I, I don't want to just talk to photographers and DPs. I, I love talking to dancers. I love talking to writers. I love talking to comedians. I love talking to any creatives and just hearing about their process. So I'm going to continue that and um, and just see where it goes. So if you've been listening to the podcast, I really appreciate it. I really appreciate if you subscribe, leave a review. I'd really appreciate it if you reach out to me and tell me what you like, what you don't like. Um, you know, because it's important for me to continue this dialogue as we move forward in life and as, you know, the future of connection and the future of travel and the future of a lot of things is, is kind of, uncertain right now. I mean, I know everybody's getting back or at least enough people are getting vaccinated where we're going to start opening and opening up. But, you know, if this happened once, it can happen again. And, you know, right now there's some scary stats coming out of, of Europe and of Brazil as we sit here. What is it? April 9th, 2021. So we never know when the next lockdown is going to happen or, or what, what the future holds. So stay safe. Stay creative and shoot wisely, my friends. Thank you. If you found this episode inspiring, please subscribe, like, leave a comment. And if you know someone that would find this conversation useful, please share. Your support is greatly appreciated as we build the Shoot Wisely community. Thank you. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is sponsored by Metric 9 Productions. At Metric 9 Productions, your story is our passion. And I should know because it's my company. This episode of the Shoot Wisely podcast is also sponsored by DTLA Culture. DTLA Culture, uncovering DTLA one story and image at a time. Thank you for listening to the Shoot Wisely podcast. I'm your host, Amir Brahimi.